美国的外交部的部长，他说这个培训中心是为了杀你们维尔族的。第一，我是维吾尔族，我还活着。第二，中华有五十六个民族，每一个民族都是中国的心头肉。我们是养了他的孩子，怎么可能杀我们呢？你说呢？<笑>您觉得僧人首先要爱国吗？那是必须的。China's been able to handle it much better than other nations around the world. Is that culture and expectations of the people, or is it about leadership or a combination? 中国的话就是集体性很强，很愿意配合这个政府的政策。你是一个中国公民，中国的一个病人，你都有生命权，不是说你年纪大的话我就不去救你了。我能问问您觉得人权是什么吗？在一个有秩序的一个社会，没病没没灾，快乐的工作，快乐的生活，活着是最大的人权。人活了才能干任何事情。You want society, the freedom of everything, and COVID everywhere, or you want a government effective system with no COVID? I mean, I would certainly choose the latter. 一个是生存，一个是发展。老百姓吃饱，老百姓在吃好。China is often accused of human rights violations by Western media, but what do the Chinese people have to say? I'm Yao, and this is China Chat. In this episode, I traveled with three American experts across China, and together we interviewed countless people before sitting down to share some hard truths about human rights in this heavily misrepresented country. Gentlemen, I'd like to know your definition of human rights. I look at human rights as being able to take care of your family, be able to get your kids educated, be able to get your family healthcare access. Be able to make a better life for your children and grandchildren than what you had. You can't have human rights without some responsibilities. In the West and uh, developed countries, we look at human rights as ballot box, freedom of speech. Uh, for some, it's the right to own a gun or to say no to a vaccine. But what are the responsibilities? I think about well, Thomas Jefferson's definition: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And maybe focus on the pursuit of happiness for a minute. You have to have enough material wealth to live a decent life. Having the opportunity to pursue your own goals in life, having the ability to feel secure and safe. All of you have lived in China for many years. Previously, what would you have said about China's human rights? I had read many books on China, and. The usual story was: if you go to Beijing, Shanghai, it looks very developed, but if you go a little bit outside of it, it's going to be dirt. So I've been very happy to see lots of places in China, and also to see how the average people live. I've been on the lookout for sort of raw, undeveloped, dirt-poor China, and I haven't been able to find it. UN said many years ago, "There's no way you get rid of poverty. It's impossible, statistically impossible." China got rid of extreme poverty. So going through these trips, talking to people on the ground, only solidified what I have known. They live in a different system. They have different expectations. They have different definitions than I do about human rights. 
right? And their definitions are more related to the essential rights that they have. John, what were you expecting from participating in this project? Well, I agreed to do this project primarily because we were going to Xinjiang. And that, to me, was sort of the black box, right? You have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State Tony Blinken from the United States, both have said that there's genocide taking place in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. I really wanted to see, with my own eyes, what life was like in Xinjiang for Uyghurs. Most of the places we visited were actually from your wish list. We have traveled to Fujian, Zhejiang, Shanghai, Xinjiang, Hubei, and Tibet or Xizang. So there's so much to discuss about human rights, but let's break down freedom and rights in different areas. First up, freedom of speech. So many people we interviewed said they can speak their minds as long as they don't break the law. Are you convinced? The perception is that if you say anything that the government doesn't like, that you're gonna be locked up, and that, that's nonsense. Uh, if you go on social media, in China, what you'll see is a lot of criticisms on a lot of issues, uh, and they talk about it. The main difference in China is that if you try to organize, right, you say to people, let's get together and have a protest, and they will come and they will talk to you, but that also means that they're not going to tolerate those who just want to hold up a sign and protest. You know, we saw what happened in Hong Kong in the West. Uh, they, they look at Hong Kong and they say, oh, it's terrible. How about the year-long hiatus in business? And for one year, it, it was pure bedlam. Protesters basically broke into and destroyed all of the Starbucks. That is not constructive. And if you want to do that, yes, there is going to be things. You have to keep the uh, streets safe. You want to talk about human rights and freedom? When I can't go to work because there's a mob who might attack me, that's not freedom of expression. Right? That's mob rule. Sean, would you say freedom of speech and freedom of press are rightfully and legitimately restricted in China? Or would you argue for more freedom in those areas? I think it's clear that individuals in China are smart. And there's a lot of very vibrant discourse, you know, criticism, um, support for various policies, various government officials. So I think on the micro level, there's definitely freedom of speech. I understand why the government doesn't want to have Twitter and Facebook and these social media sites that are unwilling to follow the laws of China. I believe in freedom of speech, but there are limits to freedom of speech. It would be great if the government did a rethink on the Great Firewall. No, I, I disagree from this perspective. The internet in the last 20 years has become a weaponized. When you start saying about freedom of speech, what do you think about somebody who can create 20,000 bots? I mean, automated accounts spewing the same garbage, all right? How is that freedom of speech where I multiply my particular views because I can, because the internet allows that, all right? Is that good? I would love it if we had a free internet, but you cannot ignore the danger. China's government has done a great job in China. So I would recommend that there be a major reform, um, even more important than the, the Great Firewall, but the media. I do agree. China has a great story, and they have not been very good at, at telling it. But it's very, very difficult to just say, oh, just open, open things up and everything will be fine. You have an asymmetrical uh, situation between the international press and, and China's press.
When we went into that hospital in Kashgar, rehab hospital, where they were helping kids who were between the ages of zero and six, Uyghurs, the vast majority, over 90% of the kids the there. Yeah, and what was China's government doing for them? They were for free. For six years, these kids could live in the hospital, get treatment. That's a great story. That needs to be shown. I'm tired of seeing on pictures of dancing Xinjiang pretty women. They should be telling the stories. Is it possible that it touched to you because it's your... <laughs> because I'm interested on Douyin and algorithms? <laughs> I think it is algorithms. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> you can talk to almost any foreigner here and they'll tell you the reality that they push out in the international press has really nothing to do with China. And it's just, uh, it seems uh, kind of sour grapes. So I can understand why the government is, you know, hesitant to allow that. Different studies have put confidence in the central governments at between 78 and 95%. Uh, it's 25% in the U.S. It does have the performance legitimacy that it's moved its country over those 40 years. I think the, one of the reasons you're getting high ratings for the Chinese government is people think they're competent. You know, you believe that if they say they can build a subway system or a high-speed rail, they can really do it. And that's an important part of governance. China should stay to the positive. Keep pushing out the facts. How many people are being lifted out of poverty? How many people are joining the middle class? What's the rise in median income? And then show graphs. How do you make sure all the graphs actually can reach the American audience? There's a lot of hypocrisy on our side. We're paying, according to their Herald, uh, to a Zimbabwe Herald, we're paying a thousand bucks U.S. for negative stories on China. You know, the U.S. government has allocated 300 million U.S. dollars a year to implant stories that are negative against China's One Belt, One Road. It shows the lengths in which you're pushing an international um, disinformation campaign that's aimed directly at China. So you have to point out the inconsistencies. You have to have people who are talking about it in effective ways. We really don't have a free internet, largely because we have an oligopolistic system, largely in Silicon Valley, which has been supported by the government in its efforts to maintain its oligopoly by the U.S. government. If you look around the world, there is no other country or region. Look at Europe, look at India, they don't really have independent tech sectors. China developed an independent tech sector because it wasn't overwhelmed by the already established monopolies coming out of Silicon Valley. I would break up those monopolies, but that's not in China's power. So maybe the next best thing is to limit the ability of those monopolies to interfere in Chinese or any other country's affairs. Moving on to freedom of religion, what did you find out in Quanzhou city, which is often dubbed as a museum of world religions? Quanzhou is great for me because in one city, we're able to interview Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Taoists, um, all at one time, and see that they were able to have their faith, the government supported it, they had the freedom of religion, Buddha, visiting his monastery, his Buddhist college, and even his home. What surprised you the most? What surprised me was how modern he was. I expected him just to be looking at texts and just praying all day long. 
But you know, he played soccer, he watched Friends, he played music. When we went into his dorm room at the school that he had Friends, the TV show on the TV, um, he actually had it paused because he hadn't finished watching the whole episode. He's like, we've embraced technology. And so we use the WeChat groups in order to teach all of our followers. We as Tibetan monks are able to talk to Buddhist monks from other countries. And so there was a lot more um, exchange than I expected across borders. And there was a lot more embrace of technology. If China was against Buddhism, and was against the Tibetan monks, they would shut these WeChat accounts, but that's not happening. Um, so it's clear, A, the government is supporting Buddhism, B, the Tibetan monks are modernizing. Whenever freedom is mentioned, many also think about freedom from oppression and freedom from fear. In Xinjiang, Sean, we visited cotton farmers to see if they were forced laborers. So what did you find out? It's clear that H&M, Nike, Adidas, and all of these Western companies who are saying they're not gonna buy Xinjiang cotton are hurting everyday Uyghur and Han Chinese farmers in Xinjiang. And it's based off of what I can see as a lie. We interviewed, you know, individually owned farmer lands. We went to big cotton factories. They all said the exact same thing, that 95% of the cotton production process has been automated. They're using drones to put out you know, medicine and pesticides onto the cotton. They use big machines in order to do all the picking. When we interviewed the person in Akasu, he said 20, 30 years ago when he started in this industry, a cotton employee would make two RMB a day. Now it's 300 RMB a day. He can't even find Uyghurs or Han Chinese in Xinjiang to hire because they're not willing to work in cotton picking because there's so many other job opportunities. So first off, I didn't see any forced labor. Second, it's clear that it's mostly an automated process. Third, whoever is actually working in the industry tends to be the owners or people hired from other provinces. So I think Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State of the United States, who's been very vocal, saying that there's forced labor in Xinjiang, has to provide true evidence or he has to recant and apologize to the Chinese people. Thanks, Sean. Also, in Uramachi, we interviewed a survivor of the 2009 terrorist attack. She actually burst into tears when she talked about how her colleague's husband got killed right in front of them. So I wanted to ask both of you, do you think people in Xinjiang now are free from fear? We asked her, why didn't you move after these terrible things? She said, no, I live here. This is my home. These people are my friends. She was running an after-school program and the majority of the children were Uyghur. Second, it was more important to me to see the children. And no matter where I went, the children were out playing. They were on the streets. If I'm afraid, I'm not gonna allow my children to be running around unsupervised. I would look out as we were going through these miles and miles of countryside and everywhere I saw, I saw these children out there playing. I saw people working. There's no way you could have foreseen where we were going to go, so this was not planted. This is simply life in that area. And the juxtaposition of everything that is said uh, outside of China about what's going on does not fit what we saw. Sure. After all those terrorist attacks in Xinjiang, would you call anti-terrorism and uh, de-radicalization measures justified? Absolutely. I think you know any country's government, if their mass population, the majority of the population 
lives under constant fear of being killed by terrorists. They have to react. It was clear that China is using vocational training, language training, economic opportunity as a way to better the lives of Uyghurs. I think the world should look at what China has done in Tibet, what China has done in Xinjiang as a model for improving ethnic tension and as a model for preserving minority culture and traditions, but also integrating them into the larger minority. I think China should be given credit for what they've done. We were told that all the uh, training and education centers are now all closed because they are not needed anymore. But in Kashka, we did uh, talk to two graduates from those centers, a dancer and a construction worker. So I wanted to know how did their stories help you understand Xinjiang better? First off, the, the, the woman there, she had been in pr uh, primary school. Her father had died. Somebody in her community came to her and said, your father will go to hell because you're not living your life according to the Quran. And they told her that she needed to stay home to stop working and that she needed her mother to do the same. So she was going to her family, insisting that they were a burqa and that they not leave the house unaccompanied by a, a male relative. Her mother was just couldn't believe it. It was the mother who convinced her to go into the re-education center. She became uh, the lead in uh, these kind of daily shows that she was actually doing well, she was married, she was completely upbeat all the time. And she was clearly happy. Right. Uh, the same with the, uh, the taxi driver. I mean, the question wasn't just that he was beating his wife. Why? He didn't want her to work. And it was quite clear that they had come to terms with it. He had a good job. They lived in a house which by basing standards would have been luxury. It was huge. They had their own land. They grew their own vegetables. The whole neighborhood they lived in going for kilometers and kilometers was exactly the same. They all had these big houses with yards and they had multiple families moving in. And this is where I said, everywhere you, you saw, you saw children, uh, dogs, people, you know, going back and forth on their scooters, taking their children here and there. I mean, that, that can't be faked. I asked both of them, are you Uyghur? Are you Han? Or how do you see yourself? They said, no, I'm Chinese, all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm Uyghur. I wasn't expecting that. I thought they'd say, no, I'm Uyghur and I live in China. But they didn't. They expressed it, no, I'm Chinese. I'm Chinese first. So in China, we consider the rights to survive and to develop as the two primary human rights. And the pandemic, if anything, has only reinforced the belief that life should always come first. David, can I ask, what did you learn from your trip to Wuhan? Well, I saw a city that had been through a, a big trauma. Uh, we met an elderly man who had survived, and he was very appreciative of the help that he'd gotten from the hospitals and the doctors. And so I, what I learned from Wuhan is that sometimes terrible things can hit, and that if you work together in a way, you can get through it. I'm sure it must have been a very scary time to people in, in Wuhan. I mean, in, in retrospect, we see that most of them survived, but they didn't know what this epidemic was, but still they were out on the streets trying to help people get to hospitals and that kind of thing. I know among the conversations we had with the elderly patients, the doctor, uh, the community officer, and also a volunteer. So what struck you the most? 
I mean, there was one person. He was one of the people who was standing on the sidewalk, um, making sure that people could get fresh food and vegetables. People came together and pulled together. So we went to the museum, we saw young people, old people, middle-aged people, some offering to be drivers for, you know, these exhausted medical workers, others who were just giving food to their local things. We saw that from, you know, the, the building of the hospital. The food was dispensed at either no cost for some or up to 10 kwai for a big bag of uh, vegetables. That's $1.50 in U.S. terms. Uh, behind it all uh, was a tremendous organization. That was amazing, the organization and the sense of community. And many were telling us that the Chinese tend to put collectivism in ahead of uh, individualism. So in your opinion, is it a good or bad choice when it comes to people's basic rights? It's absolutely necessary. As I say, you cannot have uh, individual rights unless there's a framework to protect them and promote them. I, I think every society has to have a sense that they're preparing for the future, that it's more than just their own interests. But it's not simply that you, you know, the individual doesn't matter. What happens is you have a fine balance between the two. And within China, everybody we talked to said, look, the collective comes first. Um, moving on to rights to development, David, would you like to share your findings? I'm detecting a kind of bitterness among working class people in the United States because they think they're being screwed by the system. You know, they haven't had a wage increase for the average worker, for the medium worker, since 1979. And at the same time, over the last 20 years, say from 2000 to 2015, Chinese median wages went up 11% per year. And since 2015, it's been about 6% per year. Those, that's a huge transformation in people's lives. The opportunity to travel around shows me that it's not only Beijing and Shanghai and, and Guangzhou that is developing. It's many, many places around the country. But I think quite a few of the average people and even the poorer people have a pretty good life. I've seen lots of medium and small-sized businesses throughout China, and I, I think they're the future of the Chinese economy because they employ lots of people and they they give opportunities for poor people to start their own business. And so I, I think this kind of transformation and the opportunities that they give to people are key. The thing that really struck me is how good the infrastructure was there. I mean, really excellent roads going everywhere we went, uh, which again, it, it, it opens up the kinds of opportunities that people can send stuff directly out and communicate with the rest of the world. What kind of future do you see with China's countryside rural development? I think the government does have to continue to push to increase educational opportunities in the, in the countryside and also medical care. It's really important to improve medical care in the second and third tier areas. If those things can be improved, it opens up many, many more opportunities around the country. Yeah, I'll give an example on this. I got fever and I got high altitude sickness and we're in some small village. So we went to this hospital in the absolute middle of nowhere. We actually got great care. Why? Because the doctor was from Shandong. So he was part of a program where the Chinese government was sending doctors from top, you know, better hospitals, bigger cities, to even go into the smallest of rural hospitals in Tibet in order to train the doctors. When you look at human rights and you look at China, the central government is really looking at improving the lives throughout the entire country. While in the United States, there's so much political gridlock, so you can see the difference in how the political system 
protects or doesn't protect the entire country. I was protected specifically because the central government is trying to improve the quality of healthcare, even in the most remote, tiny little village in the middle of nowhere, Tibet. A country cannot have successful cities if it doesn't have a successful countryside. I've, I've visited the homes of many farmers. I mean, not only on this trip, but many opportunities. And they're living, they may not have a lot of renminbi by city standards, but their lifestyle is, is quite good. They have very nice houses typically, and they, they seem to live a good life. Many of them are not just farmers. They maintain their, their plot, but they also usually have some sort of business on the side. So they have multiple streams of income and, and they're building up you know, in their local area. There are many villages that are basing themselves, their, their business model is tourism and probably the ones in Zhejiang near the huge population centers of, but not every village in China that's trying to be a tourist site is gonna succeed. I'm more impressed by the villages where somebody is, is created a manufacturing opportunity or some sort of direct sales opportunity. The one we saw in Hubei, the mushroom place, looks like another new model for road development. There was a businessman involved and what he did is he produced the, the, the logs where you could grow the mushrooms. And um, it was very important. Then he sells these logs to local farmers and they, they can kind of calculate how much they can make on it. And we ran into that chap who was putting his kids through college, two of them. Uh, he didn't have the chance for education. He was determined to have his children have that. And he was using the mushrooms uh, growing as a way to do that. But, What's important is that the government is a part and parcel of that. It's not just left to the uh, local businessmen. and they're supported in that. One thing that did surprise me is the amount of guidance which they can, which sort of local small businesses can receive. Many of the former farmers, they're smart people, but they may not have had the opportunity to go past the fourth grade 50 years ago or 30 years ago. And so they, they need some kind of help to identify what the market is and to figure out what the comparative advantage of their city is. And I, there is this interesting sort of boosterism between the business, interaction between the business people and the local government. And they seem to work together quite well. I'd like to move on to political rights. We sat in on the annual wage negotiations forum of the cardigan industry at a small town in Zhejiang. You know, there are some sharp words, real sharp words. This was not, uh, you know, oh, you know, let's not pretend. No, it was not a show for us. Uh, yeah, they were fighting, and the government people said, you know, calm down here. Let's 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 keep this uh, going. Uh, and they knew we were there, and they 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 didn't hold back. And uh, afterwards, we talked to the, those young ladies who actually work in the factories, and they said, well, it wasn't everything, but you know what? I'm happy because I did get an increase. So how about the Dispute Resolution Center, where we actually bumped into several high school kids filing a case to recover their unpaid salaries uh, from odd jobs during summer break? That was fascinating to me. Uh, they had all the departments, relative departments of the city in one place. They said, look, we need a better way of doing it. Instead of sending people round and round and frustrating them and making them feel bad about government, we're going to make them feel good about it. You went up to the information desk, you said, hey, listen, I have a problem. 
and they say, okay, I have never ever seen anything like this, this ability. And I mean, they have a, what was it, 97%, 8% of, you know, rate of actually settling things. And we were there, these kids came in there, but it was amazing to me that these young kids who, I mean, you go back a few years, they would not have had the courage to go into a government office and make a complaint. We asked them, how did you know to come in here? And one of them said, well, I was just walking by on the street and it said dispute resolution center. I thought I'd go in and see what they do. I thought that was really interesting. I, this would have, process would have taken a long time in most other countries. I can tell you as a lawyer in the U.S., that guy, that, that kid would have been SOL. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no way. I mean, what, he's going to start a small claims action to get uh, a few hundred dollars? It would cost him more just to start the action. And I messaged one of the kids just two days ago. I asked if they have got their money back. He said yes. What I was impressed is we were sitting there and they were introducing themselves and said, well, I do supervision. And I said, so supervise what? <laughs> he says, I supervise the government. His job is to catch people who are uh, corrupt and who are misusing the process. And, you know, it was a very funny little silence after he, he said what he said and we we're all kind of looking at each other and going, hmm, interesting. <laughs> but the fact that he's there and that he would be part of the process and the rest of these, these guys know that he's there is important. Now, yeah. subsequent to that, I found out that in Beijing, they have what they call the mayor's number. And it's uh, like a one, two, three, four, five hotline. Uh, I talked to somebody and they said, no, I used it. My son was at a school and they had, they had uh, done some renovation. When they got back in, the place smelled terribly of formaldehyde and, and the glues and things like that. And he says, this is terrible. He spoke to the, uh, to the principal and he says, there's nothing we can do. We have no place to go. His wife called the mayor's hotline. Within two hours, they had uh, called. Uh, the next day, they, they had a meeting with the things. And the third day, they moved the entire school to a temporary uh, place uh, to do it. Now, th this is just one anecdotal, but I talked to other people that said, yes, it does work. They get right back to you. The mayor takes a great pride in how many things are resolved. He doesn't want to hear, uh, I, oh, well, wait, 90%. He wants 99 plus. I've heard they're required to resolve it within three days, yes. which seems impossible. Well, no, it seems impossible for us, but I mean, we have a different sense of government than they, and there are different levels of expectations now in China than we have in other places. I know you're going to have to cut this, but what would happen in the U.S. is the attorney general would put you on a terrorist watch list. I think you should keep that in. I know, John. So in Shanghai, Gubei New Area, we observed two meetings where both Chinese and foreign residents offered their opinions on community affairs and also law revisions. So what did those experiences tell you about China's democratic process? It's the rule of law. We sat there through what was an incredibly boring meeting talking about very important standards and the foreigners that we talked to were surprised that they were even invited. They didn't know about this process. They assumed this was all done in secret or you know, stamped by some party official. They were surprised to learn that every law in China has to go through multiple readings, not only at the top level, but all the way down through every municipal level and down even to the village level before it can be approved. So very, very shocked. They were very shocked that this exists in China because the, the narrative on the outside is that it doesn't. Sean, how about you? We actually met the Danish entrepreneur who went there to help the local community to design a festival. 
I think it was interesting, Simon, you know, he's been in Shanghai for 30 plus years. It's good that the local government was willing to heed his advice and willing to talk to him. A lot of people think that in China, all the politics is completely top down. But we're able to see here that even a foreigner was able to give information, give advice. You know, when you talk about democracy, I think in the American sense, it's about being able to vote. In the Chinese sense, you know, it's more, are your needs being represented? Is your voice being heard? Are you able to participate in the process? How people become leaders in the United States and China might be different. But at the end of the day, the process of information flow going and having the needs of its citizens bubble up in China is actually quite good and maybe in many ways more robust than in the United States. Because in the US, you know, a lot of the political leaders only heed the people who voted for them. When we're looking at the festival, one of the questions they said is, well, is it only for the people who live in the neighborhood? Or should we be trying to advertise and market it so we make more money by having people from other neighborhoods come, but then it might get a little loud uh, for the people who live there. And it was a very robust, lively discussion trying to figure out what should the real motive of this festival be? For the quality of life of the people who live here or make money for the people who have businesses in that area? So these neighborhood committees were filtering in and bubbling up the information from the people who live there. And you feel a lot better about your life if you think you've got some say in it. Even if the decision might go your other way, go the other way, if you feel at least you had a fair chance to have your say, it's gonna make you a lot happier, a lot, it's gonna make the community a lot better. On the other hand, there are some decisions that need to come down from the center. I'm, I'm thinking of environmental protection in China. There's an incentive for a local area to pollute, so they might decide, I'm gonna pollute because I get the economic benefits. And it's important to have directions and enforcement from the center to stop that kind of thing. So I think one thing China's doing is, is trying to find the right balance between decisions made at the local level where there can be elections and those kinds of things that affect the whole nation or a whole area that need to come from central government. Not everyone immediately thinks of environment when we talk about human rights, but the right to a clean environment is a fundamental right here in China. So from what you have seen, what are the lessons and developments in that regard? I can't remember the name of the village, but one of the, one, yeah, Anji, where that had previously been a, a mine. And it was one of the most heavily polluted areas in China. And now it's a very beautiful place. But there had to be a transition and there had to be jobs found for the people who worked at the mine. What they were able to do is build another business for the village. It's one of the most important environmental issues going forward is how do you, how do you make sure everybody remains in good shape after the transition? We did ask them whether they got a, a say when this place is shutting down all the coal mines. And they said they actually had a villages committee, like a gathering of everyone to vote and decide. They described the kind of pollution that they were dealing with. And you know, you go there today, it's this pristine, wonderful, natural habitat. And that, that was a conscious decision. And as I said, they're willing to take a little bit of sacrifice and unknown. I'm sure there are areas where you know, they've had some trouble. We saw that one area, the farm, where they had to go through nuts. And uh, <laughs> they had to go through nuts and uh, you know, everything else before they got to tea. It's just the sense is that they did it as a collective and there was input from everybody involved. And that's very important. 
there are a few more rights worth mentioning here, such as rights to education and culture. So how do you think education is going to transform Chinese society in another probably 10 or 20 years? So 10 years ago, when my firm would interview Chinese, the two biggest problems that the Chinese always talked about was corruption and pollution. The Chinese government not completely addressed it, but it had made the situation much better. Now the problem that everyone talks about is access to education and access to healthcare. And that's why you've seen you know, great strides that the government has made towards improving more equality and equal access for everyone. And I expect over the next five to 10 years to see even more. I think the emphasis which we're starting to see on vocational education, you know, having full respect for somebody who's a, a skilled worker or a skilled plumber or a skilled electrician, that's a very important thing for society's development. So, and further making just elementary schools in rural areas really good is something that's, that's key to the success of the country. Would you say different cultures are being preserved in China or the opposite? Oh, it's, it's quite obvious that China's government is protecting and respecting the cultures of different minorities. I think on this trip we saw, you know, at the primary school in Lhasa, that the kids, they get six Mandarin classes a week and six Tibetan classes. You know, the textbooks were in Tibetan. You know, when we would interview families, you know, in Hutian or in various spots, they said that they were teaching their kids the Uyghur language, but also very happily, they were learning Mandarin so that they could equip themselves um, for better, better job opportunities. So I don't see cultural genocide going on in China. I don't see genocide going on in China. I see a Chinese government that's trying to protect, preserve, and respect the cultures and languages of all minorities. It's not only that they have dancers and painters and embroiderers and stuff, it's that the government is encouraging them to find ways to build businesses and make money off this intangible cultural heritage. Take this skill that comes from your ancestors and make something you can sell to the market. I, I think that's a real way of preserving that heritage rather than kind of propping it up, is to make it where people want to do it and make money off of it. The, the second point about the language, about Mandarin, is this process is not unique to China. The European countries follow this exact thing in the 19th and early 20th century. I think it's cruel to a child to say, you've got to learn this language that is only spoken by a very small number of people. And you're not able to, you're not allowed to learn a language that could give you opportunities around the country, maybe around the world. I think this idea that requiring schools to teach Mandarin is somehow oppressive is, is just ahistorical. Germany did it, France did it, they, Italy did it. Once they united, they formed a common language and had to have a vehicle for educating people in their schools through that common language. Okay, gentlemen, last question. What are the real challenges ahead for China in terms of human rights development? And what would you suggest China do next? I think uh, China uh, needs to stick to what it has done well, and it needs to show uh, efficacy of the government by the actual facts. Uh, not, don't worry about the perceptions. You're not going to change those until people start looking and comparing what, what their governments are doing to what China's doing and then understand that they don't have to adopt China's way, that, but simply China has a different path to prosperity.
I think there, there are a broad number of challenges, you know, facing the government. I think they've done a good job so far. Um, they need to continue. But the key is the government needs to ensure um, equal access and equal opportunity for people throughout the country. So they need to make sure that they reform healthcare, reform education, reform taxation, reform real estate, so that the poor people still have the ability to move upward um, from a social economic standpoint. I think that's what the government's been doing lately with the Common Prosperity Drive. I think the main thing China needs to focus on is keeping itself as a dynamic economy. To do that, you have to be a dynamic society with a dynamic culture. And that means people have to continue to feel that they have the opportunity to, to transform their lives. That's part of what's built China over the last 20 or 30 years. And it's really important that that continues.